It's spring, and that means thousands of students will soon pack up their belongings and move to and from the Pioneer Valley, home to Amherst, Hampshire, Smith, and Mount Holyoke Colleges, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. The schools make up the five college consortium, and together, they educate nearly 40,000 students each year in what is otherwise a fairly rural area. Four of the five colleges require undergraduate students to live on campus, but at UMass, thousands of students flock to surrounding neighborhoods after their freshman year. The migration of UMass students off campus means there's money to be made, and some say new housing developments in the area cater to students at the expense of families and other residents. But housing is hard to come by for everyone living in the Pioneer Valley. I'm Katherine Hurley, and in this episode of It Happened in Amherst, I'll explore the challenges people have faced finding rentals and homes in the area, and break down what the Amherst Town Council is doing to address the problem. I mean, I've had a struggle with housing for like the past, going back the past 20 years in this area. I remember when I was pregnant with my youngest son, and I was homeless. And I was trying to find housing in the area, and it was really, really hard. I ended up living in somebody's basement on a mattress <laughs> on the floor for the summer. And I finally ended up finding housing in Northampton. That's Northampton resident Jamie Guerin. She and her family have struggled for years to find a safe and affordable place to live. Soon after that, my family grew and I had my stepchildren move in with me. So there's three additional children. And we were doubled up, tripled up <laughs> in a tiny two-bedroom apartment. Um, it wasn't even b barely a two-bedroom apartment. It was really small. And I was, you know, I was searching for adequate housing that was affordable in the area. Garen was eventually accepted by a lottery system to live in the Lumberyard apartment complex in Northampton. The facility is an effort between Valley Community Development and Wayfinders to create affordable housing in the area. 43 Lumberyard apartments are available for households at or below 60% of the area median income, and 12 are available for households at or below 30%. According to the U.S. Census, the median household income in Northampton between 2016 and 2020 was just over $71,800. It was very stressful. It was very stressful. It created a lot of tension and a lot of stress for like everybody involved. It's really hard for families, especially with rental um, management companies having like monopolies in the area and trying to make as much money as possible and turning it over. So they prefer to rent to, you know, students who are going to come and leave, not stay for a very long time to notice all the things that are wrong with <laughs> the apartment. So it, they quick in, quick out, and they make money every time it turns. Garen feels student renters provide little incentive for landlords to keep up their property. It's a problem the Amherst Town Council recognizes as well. My name is Dorothy Pam. I was elected in the very first town council in 2018, and I'm particularly interested in housing and the quality of life for people in Amherst. Pam says owner-occupied houses lead to quiet neighborhoods and well-kept rentals. This means the landlord lives on the same property as the rental, so they're often more available to address residents' concerns. 
I live next door to a, a large house which has, I don't know, maybe 10 students in it. And the first two years we were here, they were wild. But they're fine now. And why are they fine? They're surrounded by owner-occupied houses. So what's happening to some of the blocks closer to the university is that there's like this little house on the prairie. There's one woman that was the only owner-occupied house on the whole street. That street is crazy. And it's not just in terms of behavior, in terms of noise all hours of the day and night, but buildings in terrible array. I mean, when I was campaigning, one of the things you do is you walk up to doors and you say, hello, and, you know, introduce yourself as a candidate and leave a piece of lit. I could tell which house was a rental house, uh, non-owner occupied, because the, the steps would be broken, that things hadn't have been painted. I mean, it was terrible. Challenges with landlords can begin long before a lease is signed. Kelly Brigham studies Alaskan volcanoes as a first-year geology master's student at UMass. She didn't receive final confirmation from UMass of funding for her acceptance until June 2021. The late notice left her two and a half months to find housing in the area before she moved from California to start the fall semester. Brigham found it difficult to compete for the limited selection. There weren't that many options as one, or they were filling them, or you would have interviews with people, and then they would inform you that there's like 50 other people, like they were getting tons of applications daily that they were having issues of trying to filter through. And as a result, landlords could be more picky. As of April 2022, Apartments.com reports the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment in Amherst is nearly $1,800. They would start requesting that you made three times more than the rent because they they had to figure out how to start weeding out the applications. So that was another issue with the income. As a grad student, there's no way that I can make three times more than the average rent here. And so that became another roadblock, not making enough money to qualify for apartments that I'm perfectly capable of paying for. It's just now they're having this extra requirement to filter through the applicants. UMass junior Claire Sheedy began her off-campus housing search in February 2021. She found two roommates and a three-bedroom apartment in Amherst for this school year, but she says she got lucky. I think because of the pandemic, it made a lot of people not want to plan ahead as much because there was such a chance that we could have been at home again or classes could, may have not been in person. So I think that was pretty much straight luck because of the pandemic, honestly. Sheedy doesn't have a car. So living close to a bus stop is an important factor in her housing decisions. She lives downtown, where bus stops are less than a five-minute walk away. It's really great for me because I'm close to downtown. I can walk to campus, I can bike to campus, or I can obviously, you know, hop on a bus. So it works out really well from the location perspective. Um, it's very convenient. The location, it can be a bit noisy sometimes because of the downtown bars and whatnot, and if people are throwing parties. But we've kind of just gotten used to it at this point. Shudi will graduate this winter and is currently looking for a place to live for the upcoming school year. She says it's been more difficult to find housing that accommodates her transportation needs and emotional support cat. UMass does allow assistance, emotional support, and therapy animals to live in dorm buildings as long as the student receives an accommodation through disability services. Pam, however, thinks the university allowing more pets might cut down on the number of students seeking downtown apartments. One of the things that the, our downtown apartments is I heard through the grapevine that one reason that they like them rather than the dorm is that they're allowed to have pets. I'm thinking, well, that's really, you know, I understand that. So I think maybe the college, the university should think about letting some dorms have pets because people want pets. And this time of COVID, pets have shown themselves to be 
very, very essential for many people's uh, emotional well-being. So I think we need movement, we need give, we need to look at things with a new light. Today, Shidi's focused on finding housing for next year. I'm looking at a really small one-bedroom in Belchertown. That's within my budget. Um, however, obviously, that's a bit of a hike away, but I kind of had to give and take a little bit as I'm hopefully staying here for grad school. Shidi hopes to pay under $700 a month for an apartment next year, but she believes she'll end up paying more than that. Less than a mile away, Amherst College junior Joseph Federuso is using his housing experiences as a launchpad for activism. Federuso is a junior transfer student from a community college in Brooklyn, but he doesn't fit the typical demographic of an Amherst undergrad. I'm 36 years old, married, and have a child on the way. Uh, so living in the dorms really was never an option for me. So we had to do a little bit of searching. And now for me, since I'm not coming in as a freshman and I'm not coming in as an 18-year-old, I'm not required. I could get excused from living on campus. Federuso and his wife searched for their apartment off campus during the pandemic, when it was still unclear whether or when Amherst would return to in-person classes. Their budget was $1,500. I would say it was extremely difficult. We, we were just lucky because we were able to be here in the summer. We had to do a lot of research and reaching out. I would say that you know, out of, out of 20 contacts, it was, it was difficult to find two or three places that were available. And then it becomes even more difficult um, if you have other concerns, like we didn't, luckily didn't have a pet. You know, if you have a cat or a dog, it's nearly impossible. Fadaruso says he wouldn't have been able to attend Amherst without affordable housing. His experience inspired him to start a student organization dedicated to affordable housing at the college. The group launched recently, and 50 students have joined so far. Fadaruso plans to launch a podcast about housing in the area and hopes to start conversations about whether Amherst College should be responsible for providing it. Our first podcast is going to talk about the responsibility or the effects that universities have in the community and what might their responsibility be towards affordable housing. So that's one way to create some conversation on campus and then hopefully reach out to other five colleges so that people related to housing or want to be related to housing are able to have a forum and a venue where they could actually discuss considerations about housing. Amherst requires its students to live on campus but it provides limited exceptions to non-traditional students like Fadaruso, including those who are married, have dependent children, or who are 25 and older. I think there should always be an option for the off-campus living. However, I think considering Amherst College has ample resources, you know, has an endowment of nearly a million dollars per student, I think they can find ways to work with the community and figure out uh, what the impact would be to have more students live off-campus. Fadaruso wants to pose questions about Amherst College's place within the town and whether the school does enough to support its students. Not enough just to widen your admissions to low-income and to uh, marginalized communities. You have to support them afterwards. And part of that is understanding their story and where they come from. And for me, one of the biggest parts of a person's narrative is, is their housing situation because it intersects with everything health, uh, community, uh, economic equality. The work I'm trying to do is to ask the bigger question of, is it enough to um, just create a few units, 20 units of affordable housing, but really what is the responsibility of the state of Massachusetts, especially in relation to UMass, to make sure that the 30,000 population of their university is mindful of the effects on housing in, in the Pioneer Valley. 
New housing developments are going up in town, but Pam thinks they're geared towards students more than families. We've had an upsurge recently in new apartment buildings, and these apartment buildings are not for families. There is no space outside for a child to play or for a person to sit in a chair or for a communal get-togethers of any type. They're all absolutely built up on every inch of space that the zoning allows, and the zoning allows too much right now. And they are being rented by students and some professionals too, but they're not family housing. Counselors Jennifer Taub and Mandy Johanneke agree. I'm Jennifer Taub and I joined Dorothy in being a district counselor representing District 3. I was just elected this past November. The way they're designed are clearly for students. You know, they're like a small common area with like three or four bedrooms of equal size. So they're, they're not built for families and, you know, other non-student households. I'm Mandy Jo Haneke and I am a counselor at large on the town council. I am entering my second term. Um, so I've been on the council for a little over three years, and I am also currently the chair of the Community Resources Committee, which is the committee that is tasked from the council at looking at housing. Haneke doesn't think a development's downtown location or number of bedrooms determine who will want to live there. Certainly, our student residents do affect what's being built in the town. I don't see it as a bad thing. I, I think we have students, and while any one student may only live in town for no more than three years, we have plenty of students that stay on for grad school or then make their life here. But either way, we will always have a large number of student residents in town, and we must accommodate them in my mind. And so we need to find ways to provide housing that students want to live in. And that is hard to do because every student is different and wants a different housing situation. I believe it's possible to find a middle ground where we build housing that is desirable for students, but is not only available to students or that we're not only building housing for students. One thing we've seen in the last few years is that much of the housing that is being built is potentially geared towards students. I will say there are a number of apartment complexes that have gone up that don't just have student residents living in them. They have young professionals living in them. They have retirees living in them. Just because an apartment building is located downtown and has mostly one-bedroom units does not necessarily mean it is only for student residents. And there are many other types of households that would like housing like that, and we have to recognize that too. So I think there's a balancing act we need to find. Pam says one property comes to mind when considering the relationship between UMass students and non-student residents. A unit across the street from the southwest residential area is in the works, and it could be sold to a family. 5,500 students live in 16 buildings in Southwest, and the noise level and crowding in the area reflect it. Some say the property won't sell, but Pam is optimistic. I happened to be driving around in my car one day when it was student move-in, and there were some guys there. I thought, it made me laugh, but they had turned on the worst rap song ever, and they were broadcasting it through the street, and I thought, this is like a bunch of you know male insects singing their song, hoping some female insects are going to hear it and come. And it would not have been allowed if there had been families living on that street. They wouldn't have been allowed to do it. And right now we have an example that we're going to see how it works. We have a, a responsible developer 
who has bought a piece of property where there were two single, uh, single family homes right next to Southwest dorms. And there was some nice land to it. It's got plans for townhouses and has been, been really cooperating with the local historic district and talking about it. And the feedback that the developer got was if these could be for families, young families, graduate students, young faculty, that would be great because this is a family neighborhood, this is a family street. And he seems to be inclined to try that. Other people say to me, it'll never go, it'll never go. Because who would want, what family would want to live right across from the dorm? I don't know. I'm going to, as soon as the weather's really nice, I'm going to take a chair, folding chair, and go sit up there at 11 o'clock at night and find out, is it insane on fearing in front of that dorm, or is it actually quiet? This is what it sounds like to walk through Southwest at 11 p.m. on a Friday night. Oh, he's behind us. The location Pam describes may not be the most family friendly, but homes in the area are hard to come by. I spent an hour driving through residential neighborhoods in Amherst and Hadley a few weeks ago and saw only four for sale signs. That is the only house that I have seen driving around that's not only for sale, but still on the market right now. All right, I think I found another one. Oh, two more. And there's no street signs. It's a three bedroom, two bedroom house on Berkshire Terrace in Amherst. Zillow lists the property for nearly $440,000, and it's one of only 10 homes in town listed for sale online. Whether you are a student resident or whether you are a, a non-student resident, the cost of housing in Amherst, either rental or you know, home ownership costs, are high. We also have very low inventory, which is part of what contributes to housing costs being high. You know, the other thing that many residents point to is because those housing costs are high, we struggle with providing housing for those individuals and residents or those who want to be residents that are on the lower end of the income scale. One town over in Northampton, one renter is experiencing the housing shortage firsthand. Oh, grueling. <laughs> it's, it's been, it has been uh, quite unpleasant. That's William Servos. He grew up in Pelham and attended high school in Amherst. He's rented in the area for several years, and now he and his wife are looking to buy a house but they struggled to find listings nearby that fit their price range. The two-family apartment building they live in now went up for sale shortly into their search. We put in an offer on the house that we live in and ended up getting outbid by a significant amount. <laughs> I mean, we went way over list price and somebody else went way over us, uh, all cash, and there was just no, no competing for it. According to Realtor.com, the median home sold in Northampton in March 2022 went for more than $502,000. That's over $200,000 more than just two years ago. The way the market has been in, in Northampton, it's just not tenable, I think, for, for most folks. I started looking sort of tentatively a couple of years ago, and there were, there were a lot of options that, you know, someone making the salary that I have now would have been able to comfortably afford. And uh, there's literally nothing <laughs> in this city at this point. Um, or, if it, or if it comes on the market, it's gone almost immediately. And it's, uh, as someone who grew up in the area, like, it's disheartening, you know, when you get sort of displaced by a lot of the influx of funding that's, that's come from other places. Servos' experience is part of a growing national issue. 
An analysis of 40 major metro areas in the United States by the Washington Post shows investors bought 15% of homes sold in the final quarter of 2021. The issue is even more pronounced in majority black neighborhoods, where investors bought 30% of the homes sold last year. What was what was shocking to us was that uh, the person who bought the property was one of our neighbors who we've never met, who bought it as an investment opportunity. You know, when there's such a shortage of available homes, it it's frustrating to have people who don't need to be competing in the same sort of bracket doing that uh, for their own gain. And, you know, it also, like, being, like, trying to compete to buy the home that you live in uh, against somebody else who's seeing you as, like, as, like, an income source um, is, like, it's, it's just, like, a really gross feeling. <laughs> so that really, like, motivated us to get out. I think right now there's just not enough for demand. Um, and, and so much of the the construction that's been happening around here is all like luxury apartments and condos. And it just feels like the they're building in income inequality without thinking about keeping that sort of middle filled. Servos and his wife are now searching for houses with lower price points farther away from Amherst. Taub recognizes this phenomenon in her work on the council. I was really feeling that you know, over the past five to 10 years that Amherst has really been losing a lot of its year-round, long-term permanent residents. Right. And these are, and a town to remain viable needs to have, you know, a, a real solid base and not a shrinking base of families and retirees and young professionals. I'd like to use the term measured in decades rather than semesters. And part of what we're seeing because we are losing our family population is over the past 10 years, there's been a 25, 24% decrease in the enrollment in our K through 12 schools. And with that, we lose the per pupil state funding for students. And it's getting more challenging to sustain arts, robust arts and music and other you know, special programs as you have a shrinking student population. The Amherst Town Council adopted a comprehensive housing policy in 2020 that outlines five goals, including the promotion of a variety of affordable housing options and the alignment of municipal funding to do so. There are five goals in that policy, um, and they are promoting ways to get to home ownership and integrate communities, increasing the supply in a variety of affordable market rate rental housing, updating and maintaining environmentally healthy, safe and secure housing, addressing climate sustainability and resiliency in our housing, and also leveraging municipal funding for affordable housing. And the goal of the policy was to come together as the chief policymakers in town. And so the goal was to have the council set benchmarks for here are our goals for improving the housing situation in town, both the affordable, the market rate, the availability, and just the quality of the housing. And that then can be used by not just the council, but the town staff, and the affordable, the municipal affordable housing trust in town, uh, the planning board, the Community Preservation Act Committee, all of those bodies in town that deal with housing and housing, you know, implementation of housing issues, whether it be funding uh, programs or buying land to support affordable housing, they can look to this policy and say, does this particular project go towards 
furthering the goal of the housing policy that the council adopted. Haneke's personal goals on the council aim to increase housing availability and safety in town. She plans to propose policies that would make it easier to build duplexes and update the rental registration process to the council by the end of June. I'm working on potentially two types of legislation that relate directly to housing. I've touched on one of them or hinted at one of them already, which is increasing in throughout town the ability of non-single family homes to be built by just obtaining a building permit instead of going through a public hearing process. I'm working with two other counselors on that, specifically for two-family homes, otherwise known as duplexes. The other project I'm working on with a lot of counselors is rental registration. We have a residential rental registration permitting bylaw right now um, that had, was passed about eight years ago and has not seen any amendments since then. One thing I would like to see that that does is Changes that ensure that the rentals in town, those those units that are being rented to residents in town, are habitable, healthy, and safe, um, and possibly move towards better climate sustainability and resiliency issues. You know, move off of oil, heat, or gas heat, and move towards heat pump technologies without straining the renters that are, you know, the individuals that are renting those units. Despite rising costs and limited availability, Taub is hopeful the town and university can provide housing without sacrificing the landscape. You know, of course, we live here because we love living in a college town and all it has to offer and, you know, the vitality of having students here. I mean, I specifically want to live in Amherst because of the two colleges and the university. That appealed to me. I'm sure there's a way to provide housing <laughs> for Everyone, you know, students, year-round households, and not have to sacrifice, you know, all the green space in the campus-adjacent neighborhoods. For It Happened in Amherst, I'm Katherine Hurley. On the next episode of It Happened in Amherst. Malachi Chukis is a trans man. He's also an alum of Mount Holyoke a historically women's college. That's my favorite time is when you run into folks who are like, where do you go to school? And you're like, Mount Holyoke. And they're like, isn't that a women's college? And you're like, yeah. And they just stare at you for about 30 full seconds with the clock, the wheels turning. In next week's episode, I'll take you one town over to South Hadley to share the stories and experiences of three trans students and alums of Mount Holyoke and explore what it means for the school to be a gender-diverse women's college. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Katherine Hurley, with help from Sarah Abdullahad. Thank you to counselors Dorothy Pam, Jennifer Taub, and Mandy Johanneke for their insight into the Amherst Town Council. And thank you to all of the Pioneer Valley students and residents who shared their housing experiences with me for this project.